Well, hello everyone out there in uh, lockdown land, southeast Queensland and wherever else you might be uh, watching from in this moment. Hey, um, we can, uh, you know, try and keep things light hearted around here. Uh, we can sort of um, make jokes about uh, <laughs> watching church in our pajamas and, and the enjoyability of of that and um in that we're just trying to we're trying to keep spirits up but we know that uh that it's tough out there for for many of us at the moment i've been as i was saying at the leaders meeting on the weekend i've been in in meetings uh in the last couple of weeks where where people are are discussing you know the the impact of what's happening in the country to to their finances to their jobs to their their life plan stuff. I I know people who have had their week's livelihood just crushed uh, this weekend with the lockdown. And uh, I got a message this morning from a friend of mine who's got COVID and and is really struggling health-wise. So, um, hey, I'm praying uh, for you, whatever your situation is this week, that, um, that you know the faithfulness of God, you know the goodness of God, and you know the generosity of God uh, to provide a bit of a segue for where we're going. But honestly, just as I've been preparing and thinking about this message, um, you, you've been on my mind, you've been on my heart, you've been in my prayers, particularly if you're struggling. And hey, uh, please reach out if there's anything that we can do for you here at the church. Hey, um, we're continuing this sort of mini-series this morning in... Um, it, within the bigger series of uh, kingdom, uh, the kingdom of love, and we're looking at kingdom economics. And um, I'm picking up uh, to some degree from where Graham left off last week when he gave this great message. Hey, go on and listen to it. It's on the website um, about, about generosity and faithfulness. So I'm going to use some of that language as we go this morning. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, it's always a good practice, I think, to to actually go to it if you can. And we're picking up uh, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, verse 23. Okay, and it says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So Jesus there is is speaking to uh, the the religious leaders of um, of his day in Israel, and um, this passage comes from a section of Jesus's story that actually we've already come across in our Kingdom of Love series. And if you want to um, have a listen to to, to that instance. Uh, where we're, we're sort of preaching out of this same section of, of Matthew, you can pick up my message from the 20th of June where I spoke about 
the banquet. And Jesus here is teaching in the temple courts and he's coming into conflict with the religious authorities that are there in the temple courts. And he um, is coming into conflict with them because he's criticizing them, actually. And he, and there's emphasis here, he is predicting the very destruction of the temple that they work in, that is the center of Israel's life of worship, and that he is teaching in. And he is doing this, he's, he's criticizing, he's predicting destruction, uh, because Israel has been failing to live up to her calling. And this particular section uh, that I'm picking up here within this broader uh, part where Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, uh, which runs from about verse 13 to verse 39 of chapter 23, uh, is generally known, and um, it, it, I'd be interested to see what your Bible translation uh, kind of captions it as. I've got the NIV here, but there's a subsection within the chapter that is generally known as something like, Seven woes upon the teachers of the law. Seven woes upon the teachers of the law. And Jesus sort of declares these seven woes over the teachers of the law that are there in the temple and in the temple courts that he's coming into conflict with. And one of the things that experts have identified that Jesus is objecting to in this passage is the practice of something called, and this is a little bit of a tongue twister for me, it's a fairly, uh, a fairly strange word, bad, not bad, that's not the strange word, but he's objecting to the practice of something called casuistry, bad casuistry, um, which is, uh, and he uses this kind of absurd, in, in the Greek it's a, it's a funny little play on words, this um, picture of straining out gnats, but swallowing camels. So what is casuistry? Uh, casuistry, <laughs> casuistry is a method of reasoning. It's a method of reasoning that has been used by religious scholars or lawyers or ethicists. And it's where you take kind of general principles from clear cut cases and you apply them in less clear-cut cases. And there is a lot of this that happens in Judaism and Christianity, as well as uh, the law more broadly. Um, in the case of tithing, just to use an example, you might be familiar with this Old Testament uh, concept, or it's a biblical concept, really, of tithing, giving 10% of everything you have in the Old Testament. It was to the temple. Uh, it might be quite clear-cut to give 10% of the grain that you have farmed, that you've harvested to the temple as your tithe. But you can probably imagine that there are instances where the application of that principle of giving 10% is not quite so clear cut. So what happens, for example, if someone gifts you an animal? What happens if someone gifts you half of an animal? What if someone gifts you, and what I mean by that, you, like you're in a share relationship. So you and your neighbor share a field and you're raising some lambs together that someone has gifted to you. Um, do you immediately cut off the leg of that animal to give it to the temple? Well, of course not, but you have to enter a kind of, <laughs> Not necessarily murky, but complex world of, well, how do we do this? I mean, 
maybe we let the animals grow to maturation and when they're butchered, 10% goes to the temple. But uh, what about the milk? What if you're milking the animal as my neighbor and I'm not? Uh, and how do you donate 10% or tithe 10% of milk? Anyway, you get the picture where there's this clear cut principle of giving 10% and it's really clear cut in its application, say to offering grain to the temple as a grain farmer. But in the sort of mess and complexity of real life, there are situations where it's not quite so easy to know what to do. Casuistry comes in to the process of working out how you navigate the tithe in that complexity. And it often, as a term, as a concept, has a kind of negative connotation, actually, because of the way that this kind of reasoning can be abused, actually. It can either be abused by becoming ridiculously legalistic or actually very relativistic. You can kind of use, is the criticism, casuistry to kind of, to make the law work for you. Maybe a little bit like cheating on your taxes. Uh, you're not in some ways perhaps technically breaking the law, but you're not operating with taxation law in a way that honors its intended purpose. That, you know, you are contributing something to the common good. We probably shouldn't go down that line beginning to talk about taxation law, but you get you get the picture, right? You hear these stories, say, of big corporations that the easy bad guys to pick on, aren't they? Doing things which mean that they don't pay their fair share. And they're not doing anything illegal, but they are maybe if they were wanting to justify what they're doing, going through a process of casuistry to, to show how they could get away with it. So anyway, I had my head in casuistry uh, this week uh, as I was thinking about this sermon and I ended up reading a paper by a legal scholar um, on casuistic reasoning and Catholic judges because Catholic judges as people with deep religious convictions operating in the public sphere are often kind of having to navigate how they apply their religious convictions in that context. And uh, this scholar was telling the story. Uh, he was talking about bad and good casuistry. And uh, he was telling the story of how at one stage in his life he was um, living in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in New York as a non-Jew. And he said he, he really enjoyed that season of his life and he ended up developing great relationships with his Jewish neighbors. But he said he became known as kind of, he used the word goy, which is a Jewish word for, for a non-Jew, for a Gentile. He became known as kind of the neighborhood goy. And he became useful to some of his observant religious neighbors because he was not Jewish. And he gave an example of how when his neighbor knocked on the door one Sabbath, which is the holy day when uh, religious Jews can't work according to the law. And she said, hey, I normally have my oven on a timer, but it's not working <laughs> this morning. It's, it's broken. Could you come on over and turn my oven on for me so that I can cook for, you know, the Sabbath meal and, you know, family today? And he said, sure. So he came over. She normally had the oven set on a timer, so it would just go off. But 
it didn't work this day. So he, he starts the oven for her and he says, what about turning it off? And she says, oh, well, the law and our interpretation of the law says I can turn the oven off. I just can't turn it on. He also told a story about where uh, he got a knock on the door to go across the road to the synagogue and to uh, turn the air conditioning on on a particularly unusually hot day for the season because the Jews in the synagogue couldn't, um, according to their interpretation of the law, turn the air conditioning on. Now, casuistry means that within that sort of religious context, there might be a logical reason to that application of the law. When the law was written in the Old Testament, obviously they didn't have electric ovens or air conditioners and so forth. But it, as an outsider, there's something kind of absurd <laughs> about that application, right? And that's why casuistry sometimes is is considered to it's considered in a negative kind of sense. It can seem absurd from the outside. And this is really what Jesus is having a go at in this passage. He sees the religious leaders of Israel arguing about technicalities around tithing, but missing the very point. Jesus sees the point. It is uh, spelled out here in Matthew. It's not just adherence to a technicality, to a legal and religious technicality, but in fact, the pursuit of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he uses this great phrase in verse 24. He says, you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have pursued the generosity of God in justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as well as the former, which is faithful tithing. In Greek, the more important is uh, actually weightier. So it said you should have pursued those weightier things as well as the tithe. And the Greek here indicates that both of these things were important, the tithe and the pursuit of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But Jesus says here that the pursuit of God's generosity is justice and mercy takes precedence. Graham gave us really useful language last week when he made a kind of distinction between faithfulness on the one hand and generosity. And I'm gonna apply those here for us. Faithfulness to the tithe was important because it made the economy of Israel with the worship life at its center in the temple kind of tick. It made it work. The tithe helped the temple to work, which helped Israel to work as such as a religious nation. But the point of Israel in God's plans, at least, was not just a temple system that ticked, but a world, including the Gentiles, that would come to know his generosity through a people, his people, Israel. And they were his people because he was present amongst them in the temple. And of course, this is what the temple was about. It was about God's presence amongst his people. Jesus, though, 
says you, you've been serving the temple, but failing to serve the purpose of the temple, which is God's generous disposition to all of creation and all people, not just the Jews. He says, these things are at the heart of the law and God's intention for his people, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. When we think about these things, the generous priorities of God, what I'm calling the generous priorities of God, the more important things, the weightier things, Jesus calls them. We might think about the words of Jesus elsewhere in Scripture and maybe even elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 7, Jesus says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I'm sure you know that one. We might also think of chapter 22 in the same gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says, This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They are the weightier things. And in this... To my mind, Jesus echoes Micah 6, 8, that great prophet of his tradition as an Israelite, where um, Micah says, He has shown you, O human, what is good, Micah speaking for God, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, here is my servant who I have chosen. It says, speaking of Jesus, the one I love in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. It goes on in chapter 12, verse 20, a smoldering wick. He will snuff out until he has brought justice through to victory. In him, the nations will put their hope. Justice is one of the weightier matters for God. Jesus reminds us and reminds the teachers that he is speaking to here who have become so legalistic about the tithe. Mercy, another of the weightier matters. You might think, again, Going uh, through um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quoting the prophets again. In chapter 9, Jesus also says of mercy, But go and learn what this means. I desire not mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says that in response to the Pharisees who are critical that he shares a meal with the tax collector. In another instance, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 10, the Pharisees are condemning Jesus' disciples for the way they seem to be taking advantage of the Sabbath. And he says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He tells this story about David going in and eating consecrated bread. And then he goes on 
to say, I tell you something greater than the temple is in your midst. And he's speaking about himself. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus pointing us to those weightier things, justice and mercy. I'm going to play just towards the end of this message with the language of faithfulness. In the Greek, it's this word pistis, which can also mean faith uh, in the senses that both Jesus and Graham have used it. Uh, Jesus in the passage here and, uh, and Graham used it last week when he preached. We could say that faithfulness is a part of God's generous plan. Jesus seems to be saying in this passage, Matthew 23, 23, yes, be faithful to the tithe to the temple, but only because it is a part of God's generous plan for the whole world. In fact, the tithe is only faithful, we can extrapolate from this point, when it is alongside the generosity of God lived through his people in the pursuit of mercy. It is only faithful, truly, when it is lived through God's people in the pursuit of justice. And so by implication, faithfulness outside of generous mercy and justice, this kind of faithfulness just to say the principle of the tithe, when it's outside of this context of the weightier things of God's generous justice and mercy leads to straining out gnats but drinking camels. That's, that's the phrase that Jesus used uh, to point out the absurdity of it. Remember the absurdity of the casuistry that I talked about, having to get the neighbor to turn on the oven that you were allowed to still turn off. Jesus is pointing out that there is something absurd about these kind of applications that are caught up in a legalistic Paradigm, And I think that this is part of the reason, actually, that um, tithing is quite mind-boggling for non-Christians. Uh, I'm, every so often a, an article comes up in the media, I might share some this week that have come out of my research, where non-Christians in the media are grappling with this principle of tithing. The fact that Christians would do this stupid thing and give 10% of what they earn to the church. People can't understand, I believe, I think it's understandable, they can't understand the shared sense of purpose and mission that comes with being a part of God's people, a part of God's living temple, the church. And so they assume that we have been tricked into giving the 10% or that we're doing it under some kind of duress. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that approach to tithing is absurd. It's wrong. Faithfulness to tithing under duress, I would suggest on my interpretation of the scriptures here, is actually a part of dead and crushing religion. Selfish, crushing, dead religion. Now, this is exactly, I want to suggest, why Jesus condemned the temple 
uh, in these passages that we're looking at. He foretells uh, its destruction as a part of God's judgment because of this stuff. You might remember a story from Scripture that's sometimes called the widow's might, and you can find versions of it in Luke and Mark's Gospels. But in Luke, uh, it tells this story of Jesus again in the temple court, same scenario. He He's watching the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. So that's chapter 21 of Luke, uh, verse 1. It says, He sees a poor widow put in two very small coins. And he says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she has given it out of her poverty. And she's put in all that she has to live on. Now, this story is often recounted as a story of sort of admirable faithfulness in tithing. But I would challenge you to go and have a look in your actual Bibles at this story when you get a chance. And what you will see (laughs) is that this story of the widow giving everything that she had is preceded by, and I'm going to read it to you just because it's quite short, this story. Jesus says, just prior to telling this story about the widow's might, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they love to have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. Listen to this. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers, I tell you. These men will be punished most severely. So there's that. Jesus condemning those who would devour widows' houses. Then there's this story about the widow giving everything that she had. And then immediately after that is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. So whatever this story might say about the widow's state of heart and mind, I definitely hear no judgment from Jesus or condemnation on that widow. What's going on around that story is Jesus' condemnation of the temple system and the way that the religious elites are using it to crush that poor woman. He's he's condemning a dead, crushing and selfish religion. And in fact, Jesus is seeing this woman giving everything that she has to something which is about to be destroyed by his very own prediction. Here at Cornerstone, we're just not going to run the risk of doing the exact opposite of what Jesus wants that we see here. God forbid that you would ever feel leaned on in a particular moment to give a particular amount of money to the church. And, you know, we believe that the local church is a part of God's new temple. You're a part of it. God's presence is in you. We think it's a worthy worthy cause. But if you are a widow, <laughs> if you're in a widow season, keep your two mites, right? We would, we would absolutely say that if you listen to Graham's preamble last week. Keep your money. Feed your kids. You shouldn't feel leaned on. However, faithfulness in tithing, I believe this passage leads us to see, is a way 
to lean into God's purposes where he is present amongst his people. We don't want you to feel leaned on that sort of goes towards crushing dead religion. But we do want you to have the opportunity to lean in to the generosity of what God can do through us as we pursue as his community mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Hey, I'm going to wrap up. I probably get to see Graham, and he doesn't know I'm going to uh, to say this, and he would probably stop me if he had the chance, but this is going out nearly live. Uh, to see Graham up close in the way that he works and how he's leading us as a community, and I think you could check this with other people that work closely with him. He is driven to unlock God's generosity through us as a community. I think this is central. You know, if you remember the the ship's paradigm, like we're on mission and our mission is God's mission, which is showing his love to the world, the world experiencing his generosity to them, hopefully through us. Insofar as faithfulness to a practice like tithing can help us to unlock that. Of course, we would want everyone who can be a part of that and benefit from that to get in on that, not to be leaned on, but to lean into something that God can do through his new temple, which is you and I, if we have his presence within us. And if we accept Jesus's lordship by faith, of course we do. As long as we're in the pursuit of those weightier things, his justice, his mercy, his generosity, tithing can, can be foundational for us. I was looking at some statistics just this week that suggested uh, it's pretty common for Christians across the board to give about 2.5% of their income to the church. So when they crunch the numbers, it seems like uh, people are tithing across the board about 2.5%, obviously some more, some less. And that's understandable, right? Because we've got widows in our midst. But doesn't it make sense that the more that we lean into God's generosity and tithing as a part of it, the more we can unlock it together for the world which God loves and wants to bless I'm going to leave it there. I've gone on too long already. I'm encouraged when I read this again to see that God wants to live in our hearts, in our midst. He wants to work through us. He's got a good plan. I'm going to pray to that end as I bless you right now. Hey, God, we thank you that um, you, you, you do bless us. You give us so much and it's impossible for us to repay you for that. Lord, I pray that you would give us more and more ways to lean in to what you're doing through us as a community, not just through giving money, but of course, through um, sharing the blessings that we receive with one another so that those blessings can pour out into the world that you love so much. God, I do pray that you would bless each person that hears these words, um, wherever they are, we think particularly of those affected by COVID and the restrictions. 
God, um, we pray that they would know your faithfulness. They would know your generosity in this challenging time. Hey, that's going to be it from me. Have a great week. See ya.